Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We black in the garden. Hey, hey Soil Cousins, how y'all doing? How y'all feeling? I know it's like triple digit heat in some places, and that feels like oppression. And I hope that you are being mindful of where you are and what time you stepping outside calling yourself gardening, because let's do that with caution so that we are not out here having heat strokes. I dived in hot. I'm Cola B. Talking, your hostess with the mostest. If you ask me, I, I'm the mostest. Why not? Why? I got to believe in me. <laughs> so yeah, I hope that y'all are, you know, I'm just concerned is really what it is, is why I just jumped in so hot. I'm like, y'all, are y'all okay? Like, are y'all really okay? Are you checking in? Are you drinking your water? Water yourself before your plants. I know you probably have heard this before, but it's worth saying again, because even me, myself saying this, even me, myself personally, reminding you, admonishing you, I know one time recently, like sometime in the last few days, I found myself just getting right onto it, getting on out there, making sure them strawberries had what they needed and, you know, just providing all this good hydration to these plants. And I just really had to stop and be like, what, am I thirsty? Like, what's going on? So even me, you know, I have to take my own advice. Important for us to keep these, you know, sometimes one time ain't enough. We just got to really kind of reiterate the important fundamental things because as much as we like to think that we have it under control, perhaps we just don't. And, you know, it's all good. I don't want to even hold y'all. I just want to share a few things with you before we get into this interview. We're not doing a segment this week. We not. And I'm going to tell you why. It's just because the interview that you are getting ready to hear, the conversation, let me let me rephrase that. It's more of a conversation. Generally, actually, every guest that graces this podcast is certainly engaging with me in a conversation, and I'm very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for, had the pleasure of hosting our last guest, Ananda Lewis. That was incredible. Okay, if you have not heard it, you need to go hear it for so many reasons, because of course, as you know, if you've been listening to Black in the Garden for a while, we really do cover a lot in our conversations. And this week is no different. Talking with KJ Kearney, who is a man of many talents and abilities and passions, and that will certainly come through when we get into that conversation. But here we are first, just getting started, warming up. You know what I'm saying? Let me warm them eardrums up, get y'all ready. You know, speaking of earbuds, just right quick, I do want to shout out those of you who keep up with your earbuds. I'm talking about the little joints that like the individual ones, which the price on those, child, I mean, if you paying like you paying for those, you better keep up with them. I have corded ones just because, you know, I'm a baby. I can't keep up with things like that. Or let me remember my words have power. So let me just say, I be trying. I do my best to get better at keeping up with the things. But yo, them earbuds, if you listening in those earbuds right now, shout out to you. So there's that. But back on subject, Black in the Garden. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Staying on track. Yes, it's me, Cola B. Talking. You already know that. 
there's something that's worth mentioning. And like I said, let's just get into it. Let's get into it so we can get to it. So announcements. Hmm, where are we going first? All right, here's this. News, right? There's been quite a few things going on that I've taken note of in the headlines and such over the past week since y'all last heard from me. Some of it has been disturbing. I'm not going to name no names. There is one name that I will mention, but I just need to remind y'all, the news is not my ministry like that. I be trying to keep up. It's really like, honestly, if I'm honest, the news is a downer for me. Definitely do not recommend watching the news. Like if you're trying to be intentional about it, I definitely don't recommend watching the news, you know, after dark. That's just kind of my boundary when it comes to me protecting my energy and making sure I'm getting ready to lay it down uh, with the most peace that I possibly can. But I say all that to say that, you know, I be trying to stay informed, but also not be swayed. You know, there's so, so much going on at any given time. News being media tends to have an agenda, tends to have a narrative that, you know, you got to be a real critical thinker to really try to catch that and to read between the lines or whatever. But like, let me just get straight to it. Shakari, if y'all listen to this show, you very, I, I just assume that you are keeping up at the very least with our good sis, Shakari, the fastest woman in the world. I don't care what whoever says, suspension, whatever, none of that foolishness, fastest woman in the world. But interesting how a plant and the stigma around a plant, marijuana, cannabis, Mary Jane, THC, Whatever y'all like to call her, I know some of y'all enjoyed it right now listening to this. I encourage you, if that's your jam, do that. Just Black women, I just want to hold space. That's what I really wanted to do, is just take a moment here and hold space for Shakari because sis has experienced highs and lows, okay? We saw the high. We know, you know, being proclaimed an Olympian and, and breaking records, certainly a high, Peaks and valleys, right? And and before that, having to have such a intense experience of grief from having lost in the way that she lost, from having lost people in her life, her mother and her best friend, who were undoubtedly two of the most important relationships that any person could have. But for a Black woman, I'm just speaking from my experience because I, I'm Black, I woman, I identify as she. And I understand that shit just be stacked against us sometimes. And I I just, I've been seeing what I'm seeing and hearing and reading what I'm reading. But I just want to point out how ridiculous it is that Shakari made the decision to address her grief or cope with her grief, however you want to word it, with a plant. They said THC, she tested positive for that. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. So, so many of us, would test positive. So many of us, obviously, most of us, actually like everybody that's not her. (laughs) Not super fast runners, you know what I'm saying? But the ridiculousness of it is the stigma that is still around marijuana, cannabis. I don't really like saying cannabis. I'm cool with marijuana, like whatever your jam is, I guess. But it's pretty wild that the plant is legal, the use of it is legal, in some parts of the country. It's just, it's very strange. It's kind of like an understatement, but it is just very ridiculous, I guess is a little bit more accurate to know that we live in a world where something can be kind of like 
not kind of, but it can be legal in one part and then not legal. And then like there's not even legislation or or rules or, you know, regulations around it. And it just don't make no damn sense is all I'm saying. What this has inspired me to do with my platform on this very show is to just take some time, not every week, but at least twice a month, I guess, kind of like a little mini episode where I'm just talking and, and kind of unpacking I'm happy to have recognized that I am a verbal processor, simply meaning that you've witnessed on this very show me having aha moments, as Oprah would call it. And that happens a lot with me because I need to say things in order for them to make sense. Not all the time. You know, I'm a, I'm a deep thinker, so I can certainly have aha moments when I'm sitting silently deep in thought. But long story short, digging deep is a time where I will just take some time to really kind of get into some topics on a solo tip where I can really kind of unpack things and just talk to y'all a little bit more in depth about it rather than go on for 30 minutes before (laughs) you get into the interview. I love bringing interviews to y'all or conversations. Why do I keep calling them interviews? I mean, I guess I'm just going with a technical term. Just, Just go with me. For me, it covers so many bases, but it also gives me an opportunity to really give y'all a little bit more insight on some of the things that I know I've been wanting to talk about, but perhaps I didn't get to discuss it with a guest yet. And even in looking ahead at what the lineup is looking like, I'm like, "Mm, I want to talk about this now. I want to go ahead and dig deep on this topic. So I know I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on the stigma with marijuana And Black folks, especially Black women, all right, that is certainly worth a little bit of digging into, unpacking, if you will. And I'm looking forward to that. And I hope that you enjoy that when it comes up. You'll know it when you see it because you'll see it in the subject. We're not going to have a segment on this week because my conversation with KJ just really covered so very much in so such a wide range of things, talking about the diaspora, talking about food, talking about politics and and how even running for office and things like that. So no surprises there, because like I said, he definitely be knowing stuff and dropped a lot of book titles. I tried my very best to keep up and you can find those in the show notes In case you're a bibliophile like KJ, you want to keep up, catch up with some of those titles. So there is that. Right before we get into it, I just want to remind y'all of how y'all can support Black in the Garden, the podcast, sustain the podcast. We love support. Okay, we love shares. All right, you should share. Share right now. If your hands are free, go ahead and share this with somebody who you think would like it. Share it with somebody who you're not sure would like it, but be like, you know what? I think you might like this. Let me know. You know what I'm saying? Share a link, share a a social media post or something like that. But most certainly do that because that is how the show can be sustained and also grow. So love and all that. And of course, if you want to show your support or you should, you know, because creating things like podcasts, which generally for the most part are free. I know this podcast is free for you to listen to, and that's dope. I'm I'm happy for you that you get to listen to a free show. It ain't free to make it, though. So, <laughs> so that's why we have platforms like Patreon 
And that's why a podcaster like myself will be like, ooh, I got some really cute like art and illustrations and, and logos and branding and things. So I got merch. So let's get on down to blkinthegarden.com. That's in the show notes. And get you some of this fly merch. Get you something sticky, boo. Okay. I just recognize, I'm like, wow, you know, you between a pin or a sticker or a wall decal, it's a really cute wall decal. It's bright, beautiful colors that you've come to uh, know and love in association with the Black in the Garden brand. You can also get on down to patreon.com forward slash Black in the Garden so that you can become a patron. And that just allows you to support the podcast on a monthly basis for the price of like a philodendron or a bag of soil or two. You could be supporting Black in the Garden. You was going to buy some soil anyway. You was going to get that plant anyway. Every month, you be going down there buying the things. You don't even have to think about Patreon. You go and you get signed up to be my patron. Oh, and you also, obviously, there's perks, right? Hello? <laughs> we love perks. So you get advanced access to episodes. You get that video uncut version of that conversation. Jerome, the podcast master, does a fantastic job of making it sound real dope and seamless and all that stuff. So when you actually can see the conversation, because I, I, I only give you that much, but it's always a solid hour on a weekly basis as we're going into season four and beyond. You get a nice solid hour of a conversation that I have with my guests. I know last week, <laughs> my son woke up in the middle of the interview, all disoriented and discombobulated and things. And so you didn't hear that on the podcast, of course, but I'm just letting you know that there's some really interesting and, and cute behind the scenes action that you get access to when you become a patron and get that access. And there's so much more that's going to be coming to that channel. I'm just trying to keep this thing in the road. Shout out to my new interns. Very much looking forward to that. Getting some help, building the team, scaling the thing. Just wanting to make sure that you continue to enjoy being a soil cousin, joining us weekly on Black in the Garden. So that's how you can support. You'll hear a little bit more from one of our new sponsors. That'll be in, in just a little short, short skip into the interview. And it's all good. You know, these are things that are necessary in order to sustain the podcast and to sustain the podcaster. Your girl Cole would be talking. I love this. This is a combination of pretty much almost every skill set that I have. So it is a joy and a pleasure for me to bring this to you. It is a joy and a pleasure for me to have participated in the conversation that you're about to listen to. And it is a joy and a pleasure to have your ears from one week to the next. And make sure you keep your ears open for digging deep. That's what we're about to do on Black in the Garden. So much more fun things to come. So much in store, especially this conversation with the incredible KJ Kearney. Y'all get into it. All right, Soil Cousins. So on this episode of Black in the Garden, we are really going to chop it up in all the ways. It's going to be a great time because I have KJ Kearney 
joining us. I just want to introduce him and really big him up so y'all know who the F he is, right? Blackspurt, public servant, educator, the founder of Red Rice Day, food historian and foodie, sneakerhead, the founder of Black Food Fridays, which I know y'all love. Y'all better be going to Black restaurants on Fridays, host of Fix Your Plate podcast, and future television host and visionary. KJ, welcome to Black in the Garden. Thank you for joining me. That was a really good intro. Thank you for having me, though. For real, I appreciate it. I'm going to get to my first question, and then we'll just unpack all the rest as we go along. How have plants added value to your life? Well, I think I may be different than a lot of your other guests, because while plants have added value to my life, Mm -hmm. for me, it's less about growing them, and it's more about sustaining me, the food portion of plants, right? And how... Our ancestors were the experts at growing and cultivating. And I think it's time for us to start reclaiming some of that expertise and that knowledge. And hopefully we'll, we'll get into some of that today. But yeah, without yeah. plants, bro, there's no rice. Without rice, there's no meat. And so... KJ loves rice, y'all. Did you hear me say that he is literally the founder of Red Rice Day? Let's just go ahead and get into that. Tell us about Red Rice Day where you at? Where you from? I know that's all tied together. For those of you who are not familiar with me, I'm from North Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston is considered one of the epicenters of what is known as Gullah Geechee culture. We are in the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, which stretches mm. from Jacksonville, Florida, up the coast to about Wilmington or Jacksonville, North Carolina. That is wow. the descendants of those West Africans who were enslaved and forcibly brought over here. So anytime you hear about Gullah Geechee, you're specifically talking about people who either from that particular region or their ancestors are directly from that particular region. And like I said, Charleston's like the epicenter of that. Rice is why America exists as it does today. Charleston was the richest city in the 13 colonies because of slavery, but also because of rice. People think it was cotton, it was rice. Red rice is a dish that our ancestors made because you think about the West Coast of Africa, it's considered the rice coast. Mm. That was not an accident that those Africans were selected to be brought over here Mm -hmm. because they had a, a very vast knowledge of cultivation for rice. They used to eat a red grain of rice in the West Coast of Africa. Well, in the New World, that rice didn't exist, but tomatoes did. They would create what, you know, Mm -hmm. some would consider jollof, all right? Depending Mm -hmm. if you're from Africa, you probably call it jollof, but we call it red rice. So our ancestors made this to remind them of home. It's an amalgamation of all the different cultures that make up West Africa. And it's something that we still eat today in the Heritage Corridor. And so I wrote a proclamation in 2018 that the city of Charleston adopted. And now we have Red Rice Day. Everything that you said very succinct, as you as you said. You're really good with your words. And writing a proclamation makes me think of how I mentioned in the introduction that you are a public servant. Mm. You mm. ran for office. I did. I ran for office. Tell the people about that. Running for office sucks. I'm going to just say that up front. It Fair. sucks because it's a lot of work. Everything you don't like to do, you're going to have to do it. I ran for House, South Carolina House of Representatives, District 15. Mm-hmm. My homeboy, J.A. Moore, is now in that seat now. So I, I like to tell people I warmed up the seat for him. So I lost oh. so that he could win. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah uh, running for office makes you ask people for money. 
nonstop. You know, you have to be in people's faces nonstop because there have been studies that show the more times you touch people and doesn't let it literally touch mean points. touch. Yeah, touch points. So Seven piece of mail, right? TV, interviews, you know, whatever, newspaper articles, whatever you can get. The yeah. more times you're in front of people, the more likely they are to remember you. And okay. so, yeah, you just have to really go out of your way to let people know how awesome you are. And I have no problem. I don't lack confidence but just the <laughs> relentless nature that it takes to run for office, I just, it's a lot of work, man. It's a lot it's of a work. It's a lot of energy, so right? It's a lot of energy. Yeah, it's a lot of people. You know, I I tell people that running for office is a lot like getting married in the mm. sense that when people find out you're getting married, the price for everything skyrockets, mm. right? Okay, I know that, but make the connection. This is really It's the same thing when you're running for office because mm. people who know how politics works, know that you have to raise money in order to get in front of people. So I need T-shirts. That price might jack up a little bit if they know I'm buying campaign T-shirts because I got to spend the money anyway. Consultants cost more money. Everything starts costing money. Things that you would probably get for free or for the low ski. When people know you're running for office, they trying to get that check out you. You know what I mean? Because you got to spend the money and they know you got to raise the money. So I got burnt a lot to spending money with people just because they was black. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And to be fair, I didn't listen to some sound advice that I was given Mm. about being judicial with my money. So, yeah. But anyway, running for office is a lot of energy, but I wouldn't take it back because I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the nature of people and how people receive information And it has been very helpful in terms of me developing Black Food Fridays as a platform. I feel like I'm just learning so much. We've (laughs) talked plenty, but I like how you, you know, like you break it down, but you you just give it real succinctly. Like it's apparent that you've done a few of these type of interviews. I appreciate that transparency there. Mm-hmm. But saying like it sucked, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, it, it was does just... suck. But this is also why women don't run for office because Tell we, more. yeah, I mean, we need more. I'm gonna just say this up front: we need more women running for office. Mm-hmm. We need more women because women, by and large, I, I'm and I'm sorry to generalize this, but this is meant to be positive. Women, by and large, think more about the betterment of everyone. Versus just themselves, because y'all are used to being a lot of you are mothers and, you know, and aunties and grandmothers. And so Mm -hmm. y'all are used to thinking about more than just yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we need that spirit and that thought process to be connected with policymaking. But all the things that I just talked about, a lot of women don't have the stomach for talking about how awesome they are. Talking about why they are better than someone else. Well, we've been conditioned to be polite. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that's the connection there. Obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. The patriarchy makes it hard for y'all to live, but it also makes it hard for y'all to run for office. And a lot of women Mm -mm -mm. who are so qualified just decide for themselves that they're not qualified. But if you look Mm -hmm. at some of the men who are in office now and you look at their backgrounds, you'd be like, This guy was an insurance salesman. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, this guy ran a tow truck company. This guy, you know, this guy was a football coach. I feel like you're not exaggerating. I feel like you're thinking of actual examples. Oh, I'm thinking of actual people. Like, yeah. I'm telling you for a fact that a lot of these dudes are not qualified. But the thing that makes them qualified is they believe they're qualified. And that's 
half the battle. But you're talking about the mediocre white man syndrome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I won't even just limit it to mediocre white men. There's a lot of black dudes out here who are not fit to lead. But men, because we are in the patriarchal society, mm-hmm. we always believe that we're qualified to lead. Yeah. And so that's why you see a lot of dudes running for office, because we believe we can. So I'm just mm. here to say out loud, yes, running for office sucks, but we need more women to do so because I really believe in the power of women to create policy that's mm-hmm. better for all. Like Buffalo now has a new mayor. This black woman is out here telling everybody she's a socialist mayor. Mm. I'm excited by that. Like, I can't wait to see what a black woman socialist mayor can create in her yeah. own city. Please, more women run for office. The end. Black in the Garden, right? Let's get into that. You're here. I appreciate you for joining me, obviously. I want to get into how you and I ended up connecting because it had everything to do with food. As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, it was a quote. I said, we need to eat Black. I know that's what grabbed you because you saw that. And I feel like within 24 hours of that information getting on your radar, we had scheduled a conversation mm-hmm. and we had this whole conversation and I didn't really know anything about you like that. So I was just like, oh, this is a nice guy. Like, let's have a conversation. He wants to talk about it because there was a sense of urgency. Like you were clearly very much inspired by it. It resounded with you in a way. This is how it came across to me where you're like, yo, let's unpack this. Like this, I too believe in this. Like this is, I feel like for the most part, because you have the notoriety, I'm using air quotes, of being the founder of Black Food Fridays, right? So there's the association with you and food. Interestingly enough, this connection happened before Black Food Fridays began. I remember you telling me about your vision for it. Yeah, that's actually true. And, And to be real, I have to give you some credit for my willingness to create the platform in the first place, because I figured like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's real. Like you were one of the reasons why I started this because I, I wanted to do something in the food space anyway. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to do something around blackness and food. I just didn't know what it would be. And so our conversation was one of the conversations that I thought of when I like bought the domain name, for Black oh. Food Fridays, it was you, conversation with my homegirl, Dr. Crystal DeGregory. I don't want to get the name of people because I'm going to forget somebody, then they'll, you know, be in their feelings. Somebody but yeah, yeah. But, but there were a couple of y'all who I had conversations with that kind of helped me, like, congeal this idea that there needs to be a simple, direct call to action as it relates to getting people to support Black-owned restaurants. So I got to give you wow. props for that. Thank you so much. That's news to me. News we can use. Exclusive. <laughs> that Y'all heard it here first. Black in the Garden had a direct influence on the origin of Black Food Fridays. I legit got to sit with that. Like, I can't even really respond how I would like to respond because I'm legit, like, processing it in this moment. So thank you so much. That is very, very meaningful to me. I know that you are supporting Soil Cousin. And what I mean by that is... You got a shirt, our mustard on melanin shirt. It looks great on your melanin, by the way. Like the yellow, the way it I pops on the pow, 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 okay? And I know that it is very meaningful to you. So I feel like perhaps you just explain it or would you like to elaborate more 
about yeah, I mean, why it's important for you to represent the brand. Right. So like I said, number one, you are one of the people that kind of, in my own mind, brought validity to the idea. So I got to give you props for that. Number two, I'm a huge fan of clean design and aesthetics. I don't know what the font is that you use for Black in the Garden, but it's very similar to the font that I've selected for Black Food Fridays. Wow. I love your choice of font. Number it's not my three, choice. It's Paula Champagne. Okay. Give props to the graphic designing champ, maker champ. And the font is Moret, M-O-R-E-T. That's the best I can tell you right now. There's another. That's all right. Yeah, we'll get back to it. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, shout out to Miss Champagne. I really do love the font. I love the aesthetic of the brand that she has helped you create. Number three is the color mustard. I like the color mustard. You know, I like I really like that color. But more importantly, there is a lot of significance for black people in the color mustard. So there's a book called, I mean, there are a lot of books about this, but there's a book called The History of White People. In that Isn't book- is that all books? <laughs> well, a black woman wrote this book. And in this book, she really talks about how white people, different white, quote unquote, white immigrant groups got their white card. Because if you a think about card. it- Yeah, their white card. So like in the 1600s, 1700s, you had German immigrants coming to America. And at that time, they weren't considered white. They were considered German. Mm. The same thing happened to Irish people. The same thing happened to Jewish people. The same thing happened to Italians, Polish, Russians. Like every one of those immigrant groups had to gain their whiteness. White America said, you know what? Y'all are white now. And so with the German immigrants, they were really cool with black people. Like they were really, really cool with black people. Germans are the ones who brought mustard to America for the most part. They're given credit for bringing mustard. And so since they interacted with a lot of black people in the South, mm. that's why our potato salad is mustard based. Like most black Yo. people in the South, our potato salad is mustard based because we got that from the Germans. Come on, food historian. Y'all yeah, well, amateur, amateur, out. amateur food historian. But yeah, so like in my book. Yeah, yeah. So mustard is a big deal because. The color looks good. There's a connection between potato salad. My mailing list is called Who Made the Potato Salad? Um, that was going to be the name of your podcast, though. Like, wasn't it was, it? right. It was we'll until me, me and Anella hooked up. But yeah, South Carolina is known for mustard-based barbecue because of our relationship with the German immigrants in the 1700s and 1800s. Wow. And so, you know, there's like historical reasons why I like mustard. I think mustard also tastes good. I think I look I good in it. Yeah. I love the font that you and champagne create, you know, selected or settled upon. Mm -hmm. And so like all those things are why I really enjoy wearing this shirt. Um, here's a fun fact about the shirt uh, while we're talking about the shirt right quick. A young man from Cleveland, Ohio, the vendor of the shirt who actually did the printing, he designed the shirt. It was like, sometimes I'll be forgetting that I kind of have a team, you know, well, I do have a team just because I feel like so much of the podcasting it's, it, I do it in by myself, but my brand person linked me to my vendor who is a small black business in Cleveland. We talked about what we needed, presented all the brand information to him. And it's a very simple design. It's not like it's something doing all these things, but yeah, but it's clean he, though. He came up with the color of the shirt Put the logo on the pocket and here we are today 
and you loving to embody the brand, loving yeah. mustard. I also wonder if our ancestors' relationships with German immigrants has an effect on why Black people, especially those in Christianity, mm-hmm. use the term, you know, having mustard. faith size of a mustard seed, right? Of all the yeah. small things in the earth that we could compare having faith to, we yeah. chose mustard seed, you know? And I'm wondering, I, I don't know too. this. Yeah, I don't know if this is connected in any way, but I'm just wondering now out loud, like I wonder if that has anything to do with how that phrase became popular among Black parishioners. Is it not in the Bible, though? Oh, you asking the wrong person, bro. I, I have you no clue. You asking the wrong person. I, <laughs> I'm not the girl for the I Bible. Didn't ask, listen, I didn't ask if it was in the Bible. I'm just saying I know it's a phrase we use. It I grew really up in the church. with the Black delegation. Yeah, yeah, like I grew yes. up in the church. I'm not much of a church person these days, but I grew Same. up in the church, and that was a mm-hmm. phrase that is used a lot. You know, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you feel me? Like, so I wonder if that's connected. <laughs> well, as y'all know, especially my OG soil cousins who've been listening for a while, we've had a legit seed expert on here, the purveyor of seed, seed mail, Stephanie. I dubbed her the seed slayer. And in my experience with seeds and just, you know, in consideration of Stephanie, who has sent me all the seeds that I could ever want, I have mustard seeds. You know, mustard greens literally come from mustard seeds. Yes, they are very small, but so are kale seeds and a myriad of other seeds. I've become pretty familiar with seeds and just so having sown so many in my gardening experience. So after you were inspired and everything, you bought the domain, Mm -hmm. you started Black Food Fridays. Tell us when you started and like what that, I guess, journey has been like for you, like Tell us about the experience, the highs and lows. Yeah, I started Black Food Fridays on May 5th, 2020. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend for it to become like a, a thing. Well, that's not true. I didn't intend for it to become a thing as quickly as it became a thing. Ain't that it? So, so yeah, this was going like to be... like a weed. Yeah, exactly. This was going to be a side hustle. I was in the process of writing a book that compared Beyonce and the Beehive to political organizing and community organizing. I see a lot of similarities in the two. I love that. But I needed to take a break because the research was kind of intense. And because I'm a nerd, taking a break just means different mental work. It doesn't mean no mental work. It just means different mental work. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's when I was like, all right, well, I need to take a break. Let me go ahead and start this thing. Mm-hmm. So I got the email address. I got the domain name. I started the Instagram account. I made a logo on Canva. I did all of this in the matter of like 35 minutes on May 5th. Wow. Like, it was really quick. I think one of my first posts, if not my first post, was about Slutty Vegan in Atlanta. I don't remember if they had opened or they were just trying to hold on. Because mm. remember, this is May. So a lot of the nation hadn't shut down yet. And so I was like pushing people to like go support Slutty Vegan in Atlanta because yeah. they're still open. And that was the goal is just these businesses are open during COVID. Please support them. Yeah. At the end of May, I had 1,004 followers. Mm-hmm. And I remember that because I was like, wow, this is pretty fast to get a thousand followers, really you know, and fast, I'm not even really me. trying. For real. Organically. Yeah, that's great. Really fast. Mm-hmm. But then June came. 
what I what like we to call do, June the June boom. <laughs> the June boom came where that's when America shut down. So everybody's at home. Mm-hmm. We literally, as a nation, watched a snuff film. We watched this man oh. murder someone. And so a lot of white people got woke that last summer. And so myself, yourself, I know other Black creatives that just saw a skyrocket in support. Spike. So I went from 1,004 followers on May 31st to the end of June having 4,200 followers on Instagram. I'm fortunate that unlike some of my other peers, my platform never really slowed down. Like I didn't have a 4,200 month again. Well, that's not true. I've had a couple big months, but it just never really stopped. Yeah, yeah. It just never Mm -hmm. really stopped for me. That's when I was like, okay, I can't just write about or document restaurants that are open in COVID because there's so many other ways that Black people are getting money in the food space and so much Black food history that I'm uncovering Because again, I'm a nerd and I'm not just looking for restaurants. I'm looking for stories to tell. You're a storyteller. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like perhaps that is kind of a part of your reluctance to lean fully into claiming the title of food historian is because you're really just wanting to emphasize the story of it all. 100%. And I'm not the one doing the real hardcore research, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm reading stuff by Tony Tipton Martin, and like right now I'm reading a book by Adrian Miller called Soul Food. So you got Dr. Jessica Hall, you got all these people who are legit doing research. And what I'm doing more so than anything is I have a gift to take complex information Mm -hmm. and make it like digestible and understandable for regular people. That's what I do. I feel like I'm not discovering anything. It's Mm -hmm. these people have already done the research. I'm just good at synthesizing it and then making it palatable or digestible for the everyday person. And that's that's where my success lives. But that's why I don't like claim historian status. Storyteller, I'll take 100%. I am good at telling stories. I'm good at explaining things in a way that most people can understand. I don't like to consider myself a historian because, you know, I ain't really doing a whole lot of revolutionary research. Yeah, it it makes me think of, like, I feel very similar. I'm so glad that you said that because that really resounds with me. It makes me think of, this is just like this really cute, simple little memory I'm going to share with y'all right quick. Uh, An experience that I had, I was in a big box store in Columbia, South Carolina, I was working with Zakia Esper of uh, Sowing Seeds into the Midlands with her organization. So I'm in the store, in the plant section with Black woman. It wasn't Zakia. It was someone who was working with her. And I'm talking about like, this is two homegirls in the plant section, right? But she don't really know about plants like that. So she had asked, she was like, hey, so like, why the plant leaves be turning yellow and just falling off? Like, is is that always an indication of something being bad? And I was like, no, girl, it's kind of like when you take your braids out and like you could just expect that hair is going to kind of like fall out. <laughs> You're going to have a little extra hair in the brush or whatever. That's a part of it. Plants just kind of shed in that way. Immediately after saying that, I was just like, wow, that was like a real black ass way to help you understand that this is a plant behavior that is normal. 
So that's what came up for me when you're saying like, yeah, I just, I, I understand my ability, my knack for breaking down maybe more complex kind of thoughts or concepts into terminology that is more widely digestible or just even more fun because you have yeah. a way of, of, you know, injecting yourself into it that people are clearly resounding with. Like, how many times have you gone viral on TikTok? Soil Cousins, I know you are enjoying this conversation with KJ as much as I enjoyed having it. KJ is from Charleston, South Carolina, just like our sponsor, Motherland Essentials. And if you're anything like me, um, mom, or just, you know, considerate of your family looking for something that is going to be plant-based, and gentle on your skin, something for all skin types, something for the whole family. You're concerned about self-care. You want to smell good. You want to wash that garden funk off of you. Uh, You want to try something like their oatmeal honey, sugar scrub. The kids love that on their feet. I myself, my personal fave is the Teakwood Artisanal Soap, which we can use head to toe. You can wash your hair with it, wash your whole body. Once again, don't want to be smelling like outside don't like that, right? Motherland Essentials is a proud sponsor of Black in the Garden. And I know we're all excited about supporting the podcast. We get to do two things when we go to motherlandessentials.com and we use Black in the Garden at checkout. Support a Black business, all right? Support the podcast by using Black in the Garden at checkout. Get on down to motherlandessentials.com. They got your self-care essentials, right? Plant-based products, You cannot go wrong. Good for the environment. We already got this global warming going on. Let's just try to keep it simple. Motherlandessentials.com. Now let's get on with the show. God, I don't even know, bro. I haven't made a video since March of this year. I haven't made a video since March. But Mm -hmm. when I stopped making videos, I had hit Mm 100,000. Today, I have 130,000. Like people still look at the content and follow it. I'm going to start making more videos because it's summertime. I work in education, so yeah. I have a lot more time to do it now because oh, yeah. those videos require research. Like, you know, I got to look yeah. up stuff. And then I have a qualitative question that I funnel all my content through. And if it doesn't, if I can't answer my qualitative question in the way that I want it answered, then I yeah. won't make a video about it. So I love that. We're going to talk about that after this because I need mm-hmm. to know a little bit more about that process. I feel like it will help me refine my situation. There you go. I like the fact that you talked about fun, making things fun. Yeah. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown has this book called Pleasure Activism. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to greatly reduce a really good long book into like a sentence, but basically her concept is that in order for change to be lasting, it needs to be a pleasurable experience, right? And so if I want Black people, white people, any people to support Black-owned restaurants, could I get people to do so browbeating them? Absolutely. Mm. But you get more flies with honey. Making Black Food Fridays a fun, educational, learn some stuff, Mm-hmm. meet some cool people type of platform, I think is part of the reason why it's been able to grow so quickly. Cause I, I do a very, 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 very small amount of browbeating. 99% of my content <laughs> is fun. You know, like, it's like, yeah. Ooh, did you know? And 
hey, let me show you all this. And and I think that's what has helped it expand so quickly without any celebrity endorsements or cosigns or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I like how you're like just a little bit of browbeating. So the what I want to tie into that is one of your quotes that you recently put on Instagram. It doesn't really matter where you put it. It's the quote that matters. So you said white supremacy influences America's perception of cultural foods. Mm-hmm. But y'all don't hear me, though. That's how it ended. <laughs> but, you know, the main thing is, is that mm-hmm. is that browbeating? Like that's a little bit. I mean, I feel like okay. because the tone of Black Food Fridays is usually much more jovial. Right. And so your this, new logo, you rebranded. Yeah, exactly. With a smile. So, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. Like uh, I, I want this to be a happy experience. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there are things that I want to say that can't be they can't be sugarcoated. They can't be. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, the point, I think if I tried to make that a happy go lucky post, mm-hmm. I think the point would have been missed. So Absolutely. sometimes you got to call a thing a thing to to get people's attention. And that's what I did in that post is like, it's not an accident that black people have been vilified for eating fried chicken and watermelon yet all the major fried chicken corporations in this company mm-hmm. are not owned by black people. KFC, strange. Mm-hmm. Zaxby's, Bojangles. Like I can go on and churches chicken, right? Like there's so many, baby yeah. in the epicenter of the hood. Popeyes, like yep. all these pl- places are making millions of dollars mm-hmm. off this thing that they vilified us for. That's white supremacy is to be able to tell you you can't do it while then turning around and making hundreds of millions of dollars. Bruh, they sell watermelon juice in Whole Foods now. Watermelon juice. Do you know how rich black people could be if we didn't listen to white folks in post-slavery during Reconstruction era, mm. if we would have just been like, I don't care about your menstrual stroke, y'all can blackface all you want to. We still going to eat this watermelon. We're going to sell it. We're going to make money off it. Could you imagine how much money a black person could have right now if they would have just dedicated themselves to the proliferation of watermelon? Like they're selling wow. $6 watermelon juice. And this is like, Eight, 12 ounces, right? Like, but we, Hold up, we get vilified. Like you said at least $6 for a bottle of watermelon juice. Yeah. All right. So we know watermelon. We know watermelons are just a naturally water content plant, fruit, whatever you want to call it. I could imagine you can maybe get at least three bottles of juice out of one watermelon. Possibly. And Damn. how much, how much does one watermelon cost? Six. Six to eight dollars, depending where you buying it from. We talking about no, I'm not thinking about buying it. I'm thinking about growing it. You know oh, well, see, saying? even there, like I'm right. a plant entrepreneur, so I'm always <laughs> gonna be like, yo, so how do I like how yeah, much it's like if you can grow enough watermelon and you know like we're, we're, watermelon. This, is, this is watermelon season now, you know what I mean? Like Amen. this is this it's is it. summer 2021. Exactly. So if you were to plant enough watermelon in like April, May. Yeah. And you harvest it by the end of June or July. You can legit start a watermelon water business or watermelon. I like how juice. you said you, because I'm just like, actually, it's probably about to be me. Yeah. I mean, it's not my ministry. I ain't about to do that. But it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. I'm inspired. Yeah. yeah. And what a lot of people don't know, at least in South Carolina, we are heavy in the commercial watermelon game. 
like heavy, mm. heavy. In fact, in the 1950s, there was an enterprising scientist in Charleston who mm. developed a new type of watermelon that was easier to transport, mm. that was bigger than what was available at the time, and, you know, therefore provided more fruit, more meat, and, and more water inside. And it is called the Charleston Gray Watermelon. Up until, I would say, 10, 20 years ago, 90% of the commercial watermelons created in America were the Charleston Gray variety because it was just a, such a hearty variety of watermelon. You know what yeah, I mean? Like when you, when you throw it in the truck, well, you don't throw watermelon in the truck, but when you put it in the truck, every little bump, you didn't have to worry about it shattering. Absolutely. Because they made this watermelon and, you know, but now people want seedless, they want smaller, they want sweeter. Mm. So the Charleston Gray is kind of falling out of favor. But um, Charleston, like, we started this gangster shit when it comes to this watermelon stuff and no one knows. I didn't know about this until last week doing research <laughs> for a project for next week, I you know, for it. next year. Yeah, absolutely. We got to reclaim... A lot of this stuff, man, especially, you know, that's why I enjoy what you do is because right now it's about personal gardening. And I mm -hmm. get that. And I think there's some liberation in that. But eventually it's going to have to start getting into this black farmer stuff, right, where we start creating commercial farms or supporting the commercial farms that are out here. That's a part because, of my ministry for sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's money here and they vilified these things long enough. We need to go ahead and get it. I want to shout out Natalie Bazil and her book that dropped this year called We Are Each Other's Harvest. Natalie has worked so hard in researching and being his, literally a Black farmer historian. That is wholly a part of her ministry. Most people know her, especially the Blacks know her. As the author of Queen Sugar, most likely by the time this episode comes out, she would the episode would have already aired. So shout out to that. But even that show is centered around a black farmer. You know? I'm about to say it's still on. It's the same theme. It's farmers. Yeah. She just made farming cool. You mm -hmm. get what I'm saying? Like that's why Adrian Marie Brown is so important to me. Is because that is the key. Black people do a good job of making things cool. We don't do a good job of making things cool and then monetizing it. Come on now. See, let's park there. That is a part of where I'm going with this. I recognize, I don't know if I recognize it from the very beginning, but I've very recently had a revelation as far as what I'm doing in the space and what's happening. One thing, rebranding horticulture, but I recognize the visionary in me jumped out and was like, yo, if you're going to meet people at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture, agriculture, whatever, and if Black people are going to get into plants and it's really going to stick and it's really going to catch on, then what is going to happen to the culture of horticulture? It's going to be fly and it's going to be like, oh, yeah, cool. Now we want to like be out here growing and, and looking yeah. real fly and like these elaborately designed gardening aprons or whatever. Hopefully I'll have one out by the time y'all... <laughs> Get to hear this. Yeah, That's real works. talk, man. Like, shoot, make them. But make we changed the whole, yeah, and and making it cool though. It's like, no, let's not just get caught up in like the looks and the gram and stuff, but let's really reclaim ownership in a very real and significant way that allows us to tap into some generational wealth. Because that's what white people did, especially in consideration 
of all the free labor that mm-hmm. was provided by our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And just going back to Charleston, let's go back to Charleston. In consideration of the culture, the Gullah Geechee culture to Charleston, to America, to the world, the significance of the culture. Oh, yes. That's what I can, I'm trying to ask. Yes. Without us, there is no black culture, period. Okay, say that again very succinctly because I'm probably going to like take a little cut out of that. Say that again. Without Gullah Geechee people, there is no black culture in America. We are the original black American made culture. Right. I mean, there's Mm. the black diaspora is all over the world. So I'm not Mm -hmm. I'm not here to claim that we're the first black people. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that our culture was the first American black culture. And from us. All mm. blackness in America grew. So wow. think about that. You had Jamestown 1619, right, in mm. Virginia, mm. Wh- where slaves first came to the New World. Mm. But depending on what book you read, anywhere between 45 and 60% of all slaves in America took their first steps in Charleston, South Carolina. Their very first time reaching this new world was here. So the epicenter of slavery, of chattel slavery, was Charleston. The richest city in the colonies was Charleston because there were so many slaves here. Yeah. Then you, you know, you branch off to North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, you know, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. After the Civil War, you have the Great Migration. So now you have black people going to California going to Chicago, going to St. Louis, going to New York, going to Philadelphia, they are trying to recreate what they remember from the South. But you got to think Gullah Geechee culture is a primarily plant and seafood based diet, right? Our cuisine is primarily that because we're close to the water. Yeah. We're close to the water, right? (laughs) But, But when you move to Chicago, when you move to St. Louis, ain't a whole bunch of water, right? And so the diet changes from being primarily seafood to pork because that's what's prevalent in those areas, right? You don't have a whole lot of freshwater lakes and and rivers and all that stuff, right? So the diet changes. They're using techniques that they learned in the South, Mm -hmm. but just applying it to different plants and vegetables and produce that they have wherever they go. So we set the foundation. We are the foundation. Everything that is Black in America is built on our backs. And I don't mean that to be like, y'all need to pay homage to us. I'm just saying that's the facts. Like, the fact is we were first, then there was a migration, Mm -hmm. and then everything that was built afterwards was just kind of making do with whatever was available wherever you are. So... If you're in Arizona, if you're in Montana, if you're in Chicago, you're going to have access to different things. But that's why no matter where black people are, the food's going to be seasoned, my dude. You know what I'm saying? Like oh, the sure. food going to be seasoned. It's going to have flavor because that is in us. That's from us to West, you know, from West Africa to here to wherever yeah. we go. That's just in our DNA. So I'm that's sorry. I got kind of on a, a little tangent. But, yeah, we no, are that's not the foundation. You're on point. You are all the way on point. There's no tangent there. So what came up when you described our um, enthusiasm for spice (laughs) and seasoning our food is 
even down to vegan culture, right? Well, first of all, it's not a thing that originated with white people anyway, so there's that. But in the contemporary consideration of vegan culture, especially considering the impact that Black people have had when we think about something like vegan soul food, it's just so apparent that, you know, Black people came in and was like, so we're not eating meat. We've established that. But what we are going to be eating is going to be motherfucking seasoned. And there you have vegan soul food. It's just like the difference between people's perception of tofu. Yeah, (laughs) It's like, yeah, you thought the tofu was whack because that kind of comes from the way that white people didn't really adamantly get in there and season it good and cook it in a way, you know, like it just, it speaks to the innovation that black people bring into anything that we do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the spice is just, it's a big part of it. So think about the meat joint, like a lot of these mom and pop soul food restaurants, they are known for what is called a meat and three, a meat and three is a meat and three sides. Yeah. And them three sides is going to be vegetables, bro. Like, yeah, we've been on this greens. vegetable tip. Yeah, like, this yeah. ain't new for us. It's just mm-hmm. the way it's been marketed mm-hmm. is that veganism, vegetarianism, pescatarianism, all these isms as it relates to diets is some mm-hmm. white people stuff. It's yes. not white people stuff. It's just that we market it a different way. And so it's been sold to us like we don't do that when yeah. that's the foundation of our diets. Because... That's the foundation of Gullah Geechee cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's seafood and a whole bunch of vegetables. It makes me really think uh, it's worth, like you said earlier, saying out loud, thinking out loud about this concept of how the disconnect that Black people have with certain things, such as gardening, a lot of outdoor activities, veganism, yoga, whatever, is because it was a thing that was not that did not originate with them. However, once they got hold to it, they either gentrified it or the word that I said, rebranded it. And then when that happens, and it just is not so palatable for Black people because we have a very particular way that that we prefer to engage with things. Like we wanted to have soul. We wanted to have seasoning. I did want to ask you about some of your favorite resources for information or social media accounts specifically emphasizing Gullah Geechee culture? Oh, well, I mean, the best is the Geechee experience. Agreed. By far. They are the best. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, they're the Mm -hmm. best. Like, you know, and I've, because before I did Black Food Fridays, I had a company called, and I still do, I don't really do much with it, called Charleston Six Together. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to like mainstream Gullah Geechee culture through dialect. So I sell T-shirts that have like boy ye on it that yeah. say Boonky and, you know, other phrases that we use as Gullah Geechee people. And so when they came out doing their thing, there was a lot of people that was trying to put me against them. Like, hey, these people trying to step on your toes. I'm like, bro, this culture don't belong to just me. I got my That's own so way weird. of doing it. It's yeah. weird. But like, you know, some people can't see the forest for the trees. For me, we need more Gullah Geechee companies, especially contemporary ones like theirs that are making this thing cool and accessible and fun. They do. We don't need just them. You know, we don't need just me. We need more people doing this. Um, There's a young lady in Savannah who goes by Crack Teat. Starts with a K. K K-R-A-K 
T-E-E-T, I think, is how she spells it. I just felt like there was not a C in it, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no C in it. But Mm -hmm. she's doing some great work. Dr. Uh, Jessica Berry, who Mm -hmm. is in charge of the speech pathology program at South Carolina State University, I wrote the forward for her little Gullah book. Yeah, and, you know, she's doing some great work, but she's doing it in the academic realm. You Mm -hmm. feel me? So, like... Wow. We got people who are doing it on Instagram, like Geechee Experience. You got people who are doing it on the academic side, like Jessica and Son, who is mm-hmm. teaching Gullah language at Harvard. You know oh, what I mean? Like, I did not know this. Hello. Yeah, like you wow. got me on the food tip. You got Crack Teat, who's, you know, historian. You got mm-hmm. Chef BJ Dennis, who is doing it from an elevated cuisine way. There's just so many people out here who are doing great things. But I would just cautiously say that, you know, anyone who wants to do this can do this. I I don't know if I'm going to go that far. What I will say is (laughs) if you have a connection to the culture Mm -hmm. and you have a specific lane of problem that you want to solve, then yes, there's room for you here because we got hundreds of years to catch up on and five of us can't do it. We Mm -hmm. five of us can't bring it to, you know, when I say bring it, bring the notoriety that it deserves by ourselves. We can't do it. Mm -hmm. I like that you said that. Wow. It's just such a good point because so much of what you said, I learned a lot just in having this conversation. Obviously, Soil Cousins, y'all are learning a lot. I I just assume. And very appreciative of that. But that that is a very good point because the fact that so much of this information that I've received from you in this conversation is like new or like I just... I'm still processing it. That is an indication of the fact that the information is not widely disseminated enough. It turns out that this is literally the core of American history. I don't remember in my upbringing, in my education in primary school or whatever, even really hearing about this culture at all. But why would you? That's one thing. Let me say this. I'm not trying to put lipstick on a pig. Mm -hmm. But one thing that white people throughout history have been really good at Mm -hmm. is understanding value, right? True. They understand value. That's why they gentrify because they can see like, oh, you know, we might be like, don't nobody want to live there. What they see is, ooh, 10 minutes from the airport, 20 minutes from the beach, Mm -hmm. six minutes from this, 17 minutes from that. Yeah. They be like, okay, It don't look like nothing now, but like if we get in here, we can make this thing pop. And then when it pops, then we be like, oh, these white people taking our stuff. Now, sometimes they do. They do Debo. But a lot of times what they do is they just understand value. Right. And so, yeah, plain and simple. And so I think that's what you're seeing now, especially with the millennial, you know, black millennials is that we're kind of leading the charge in terms of understanding the value of what we have. Can I add something to that? Of course. Because I'm, I'm right along there with you. Also playing the long game. And let me give you an example. Oh my God. I just, what, what just popped up when you said what you said about the value and all that and playing the long game. I remember when I first got into plants, it kind of put me on this path where I just kind of intuitively recognized that One of the things that I kind of recognized in my early plantrepreneurship was I noticed in going through certain areas in town, I was in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, but I would notice that there would be these 
plantings. Like there, you notice in, if you go to a downtown area or whatever, there's like these containers that are part of the, the scape. You know, you have like the lights and stuff and, and there'll be seasonal plantings there. And I was just like, well, who does that? Who puts that in there? I want to do that. I still do. But I started doing research and it, I don't remember exactly how I got led to attending a meeting for this council for this neighborhood in Jacksonville. Gosh, what is the name of it? I don't know why I can't. Springfield, historic Springfield. And one of the biggest complaints about what's happening with historic Springfield is that it's being gentrified. So I remember sitting in this meeting with the gentrifiers (laughs) in this meeting that they were having about plans that they had for the area. And I remember hearing them talk about a particular apartment development and how I don't remember exactly the language, but it was like, I recognize that there was a coding. I just kind of recognized that like, and how they were saying what they were saying, which was basically like, we got to price it in a certain way to make sure that it is palatable for who's coming in versus who we're wanting to get out. I recognize that's not what they said, but that's what I I heard. And then I also remember one thing that stuck out from that meeting was they were talking about a person, a white man who had come into that area 30 years prior to any white people really coming in there. And just like you said, seeing the value. And it's like, he was kind of like putting the flag in that area that ultimately led to that. And that's when I was like connecting all these dots in my head. And I was just like, damn, this ain't no shit that just happened overnight. Like it'd be like a long game plan. This is a strategy. Yeah, here's something that a lot of people don't know. And I didn't know until I ran for office. Every city, and I don't know if it's of a certain size or if every incorporated city and town has to do this. But every city, at least I know of a certain size, has to submit a 10-year plan every 10 years to the federal government or to the state government at minimum saying this is what we think is going to happen in our city over the next 10 years. They got to create a plan. North Charleston just did theirs last year or two years ago where, yeah, I think it was called Prime, North Charleston Prime or something like that, where they like, okay, in the next 10 years, we think this is going to happen or we want this to happen. And here's another thing for y'all to keep in mind. If you know of a historically quote unquote bad neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. And you start seeing new roads and bridges being built around that bad neighborhood, plan is already in motion. By the time that happens, it's too late, bro. If you can get property, go on and get it. But like road infrastructure takes a long time to get approved. So they're not building a new road or a new bridge for the black people or the brown people that's been there for 100 years. They build a new road for the people who they want to bring in. But like you said... These things are set in motion at minimum 10 years in advance. Yo, that's what's that. And I noticed recently with the Underground Atlanta, which is a historically Black celebrated place, downtown Atlanta, and it's being gentrified. I saw something somewhere. I know, I think it was on social media. And I saw, like, I, I could tell by the aesthetics alone that it was already happening. And it broke my heart because I was like, this is downtown. Like, this but is underground no, Atlanta. Let's be clear. Well, let me be clear. Mm-hmm. 
I am not 100% against gentrification because Break the, that de- down. That's the definition of gentrification, it. words matter. The yes. definition of gentrification is to take a blighted area mm-hmm. and make it middle class. Mm. Right? Yeah. My aunt lives in my grandma's house, right? Mm-hmm. In a historically black neighborhood in North Charleston. If you were to tell my aunt that two blocks from her, they're going to put in a Whole Foods, you think she would complain? No, she would not complain because where she lives at is a food desert. There's no grocery yeah. store within 15 minutes of my aunt right now. Mm. So if they put in a Whole Foods two blocks away, she's not going to complain. You don't think she wants to drink coffee? You know, if they put a coffee shop in the neighborhood, you don't think she'll support that? Black people it's want convenient. these amenities. Yeah. yeah. Black people want these. You don't think we want sidewalks? You think we well, want to be walking in the street? Yeah. We deserve all this. But the problem is, once it passes gentrification, once the amenities get past middle class, mm-hmm. then you get into displacement. Yeah. Right? When the taxes are way too much. When now they start putting HOAs, right? Home oh, ownership association fees. Mm-hmm. When they start saying, your grass is too high, we're going to fine you. When they start saying, oh, this is now a historically preserved area, so you can't just paint your house now. You got to get a certain type of paint. They gotta, you know, you can't just fix your roof now. You got to get a certified, someone you who's certified in doing historical roofs. Yeah, you know, like when mm-hmm. that stuff starts happening, that's when black people and brown people get kicked out. But if you told me that you, you were just going to put streetlights and sidewalks in historically black neighborhoods. If you're against that, you're not really for black people. If you don't want black people to have grocery stores and coffee shops, you're not really for the people. Mm. You can want those things and you can have those things if you plan properly without displacing people in the neighborhood. Now, even me and you, as I get money, I plan on, I would love to buy my house, that house for my auntie. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But I would be a gentrifier. You know what I'm saying? Like if I start making a lot of money and I move into my grandma's old neighborhood, I'm a gentrifier, bro. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm going to improve this house in a way that's comfortable for me that might raise the property tax. My goal is to be conscientious about how I do it. Right. So I'm not going to add 2000 square feet to my grandma's house that decimate everyone around me unless racial patterns hold true. And it doesn't matter how much money I put in the house. If they consider that a black neighborhood ain't but so much is going to be appraised for anyway. Read a book called The Color of Law about redlining and, you know, housing discrimination for black and brown people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that could also be a thing. But at any rate, if I come into a neighborhood and people like me come into a neighborhood and we start complaining to City Hall, we want more streetlights and we want sidewalks and we want all these improvements that might end up displacing the black people who are already there. So we got to be conscientious. That's why, like I say, we got to use these words in the proper context. Gentrification by definition is not a bad thing. I think we should all want black and brown people to have nice things. But when we We run out, yeah, we deserve it. But when we go too far, right, that's when you start building apartment complex or condos complexes where Every house in the neighborhood is worth $89,000, but then you build this complex on the street over where, the fr- where a condo is $100,000, you're going to decimate that area. Anyway, I'm off Happening my high horse. This has been another time. episode of 
Black and well, <laughs> No, no, I'm glad that you said that because, okay, I got two questions. We're going to wrap it up, wrap it up. We didn't even talk about your podcast, dude. Like, what? Like, it's all good. I, you know, I'm you can use this to... as an excuse to bring me back. No, we're going to talk about, like, this is going to be a longer episode. Like, Jerome, keep it in, okay? Um, <laughs> do you mind yeah. telling us how it went from... Who made the potato salad? Well, you go and tell. Go yeah, on, yeah I can. I can. You know, mm-hmm. you and I have been talking. I told you I was thinking about starting a podcast and I was going to mm-hmm. call it Who Made the Potato Salad. And I loved it. Thank <laughs> you. And, and me doing my research and realizing what it takes, because I'm an audiophile in the sense that not necessarily that I want to do the work to make my audio sound good. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go to full sale university and learn how to become an audio engineer, but I do I want, I want a good audio, good sound. So I'm doing all this research. I'm like, hey, a good mic costs how much, you know, mm-hmm. a good software to, to edit this costs how much? And like, oh, God, it just so happens that I had made friends with Anella Malik of Feed the Malik, who is a Shout food influencer, food blogger yes. in the D.C. area, black woman. And the Eat, Drink and Dine Network was starting and they had reached out to her and said, hey, we would love for you to host a podcast. And she was like, I would love to host a podcast, but I'm in the middle of writing a book. And I can't do this by myself. So if you will allow me to bring on a guest, then I'll do the podcast. Mm-hmm. And they're like, a yeah, co-host. cool. Yeah, yeah. Or yes. co-host, excuse me. I said guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, co-host, because words matter. So they were like, yeah, you can you can do that, whatever. We just want you on the network. And so she reached out to me. It was like, look, they already got uh, producers. Like, they got yeah. the network set up. All we got to mm-hmm. do is talk. Give them some notes and send it on in. And I, I wish was like, they would have caught me about that from Black in the Garden, but I'm manifesting that. Let's yeah, manifest, manifest that. Ahead, and I was ahead. like, yeah, if I all we got to do is talk and send them notes, let them do all the heavy lifting, fine. And so that's how it started. Hey. Anella brought me in on a sweet deal that she got, yes. and they do revenue sharing when they start getting ads. Now we got our own ad for like our last podcast episode was sponsored by Flipboard. Shout mm-hmm. out to Flipboard. I mean, our contract is great where they even let us keep, if we bring our own ad revenue and we get to keep it. If they bring us ad revenue, then we got to split it with them. Mm -hmm. But if we bring it, they let us keep it. So again- I see how you wouldn't have a problem bringing it. Why exactly? Why would I have a problem with this? This is pretty dope. This is pretty dope. Well, that was not, that was Anella. Anella got the flipboard. So I got to give credit. Anella has a good relationship with them. She brought the flipboard deal. Mm -hmm. There's some other deals down the pike that might, if they come to fruition, it's me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, but but anyway, so that's how the podcast started was Anella mm-hmm. reaching out, says she didn't want to do this by herself and that yeah. we didn't really have to do a whole lot, a lot of work. I mean, it's still okay. work, though. We got a plan. We got an interview. We got a schedule like it's you, work. You got your part to play, but, you exactly. know, hosting duties, it makes sense to do the due diligence. Yeah. If you just come in and sit down and talk, then you ain't really like investing. So, yeah, much. yeah, exactly. So but it that's shows, how the podcast though, it's started. a good show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. We take time to figure out what we want to talk about. So like Mm -hmm. I said, there's still planning involved. We have a weekly planning meeting. So I talked to Anella probably more than I talked to a lot of other people because it's on the books, you know, like it's on the books. We talk every week. But it's a job, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's legit. Like y'all got, you just described the whole shebang. So congratulations on that. Shout out to Fix Your Plate podcast. Mm -hmm. Sign up for the newsletter, which is who potato made the salad? potato salad? That's my newsletter. Yes. Who made the potato salad? That's so basically, good. listen, just go to Black Food Fridays on Instagram. In the bio, there's a link to everything I got going on. I really 
want y'all to support Black-owned restaurants once a week. It's a very easy call to action. And if you don't want to support a restaurant, support a Black barista, support a Black consumer packaged goods company. Mm -hmm. Anyone in the food and beverage space who is Black and you can support them, do it every Friday. Tell us about just random. Don't worry about hurting nobody's feelings. Yes. Just off the top of your head, tell us about a few of your favorite Black food brands. First one would be Slutty Vegan. I got to explain because I want to tell you why I like them. Yeah. Slutty Vegan would be first because I think Pinky Cole has exemplified what it means to build a contemporary food brand. From the marketing. An understatement. From the communication. You know, she was one of the first Black companies, food companies, I saw that was really heavy in the text messaging game. You know, like she was early. She was early, early on that. Sis the, understands marketing. She it's understands apparent. marketing better than yes. anyone else, bro. She is so good at that. That's why so she has good. lines out the door every day, bro. Like she understands. That's not a coincidence. That's not just luck. I just yeah. need everybody to understand that's not luck. That is yeah. strategy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mikey likes it ice cream in Harlem, New York. Same mm-hmm. thing. They've done collaborations with DKNY. They've done collaborations with the Ewing brand for sneakers. Mm-hmm. You know, they got uh, starter caps. They've done a, a lapel pin. Starter cap? Come on. Yeah, I got, I got so one. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly, I'm right? Like, one. they know what they're doing. So shout out to Mikey Likes It in Harlem, mm-hmm. New York. I would also say locally, while well, I am in South Carolina, there is a Black woman-owned bakery called Swank. Swank mm. Desserts in Somerville, South fancy. Carolina. Yes. yes, it sounds fancy. Her storefront is gorgeous. Everybody wears black T-shirts. Their Mm -hmm. boxes are all Tiffany colored. Her branding Branding. is just so on point, bro. Like she she really understands who her target demographic is and how to market to them. And she's in the bakery every day. I don't know if Mikey's in his ice cream shop every day, but you see this through line of these Black-owned food brands that are really good at branding is that the person who started it is usually not in the restaurant every day because it's hard for you to be creative when you're frying chicken for eight hours a day. Come on. You know, and running the register and sweeping up the floor and doing all these things. And And again, yeah, there's (laughs) nothing wrong with doing that because you got to do what you got to do. But it's hard for you to be creative. Yeah, it's hard Mm -hmm. for you to be creative and do all of that. Like I just gave shout out to a black woman in Baltimore um, in fact, there's two businesses in Baltimore, Nacho Bangers, mm-hmm. who um, Damn, I went good. to go see. Yeah, I went to go see because of Pepsi. Pepsi paid for me to go to Baltimore Shout and check them that. out. OK, is Lessons. that Nacho Bangers with an S or a Z? I'm taking yes. notes. Good okay, question, gotcha. though. Good question, because, mm-hmm. you know, black you could know be the a Z. Blacks, we yeah. love to put a Z at the end, <laughs> we love baby. love to put a Z. <laughs> and um, Eric Williams, he's a very I mean, he showed me his DoorDash receipts. He works out of a ghost kitchen. It's a 500 square foot ghost kitchen. There's no dining. You just come to the window, order your food and leave, right? Mm -hmm. They made $38,000 out of a 500 square foot room in the last 30 days, right? (laughs) $38,000. Why? Because Eric is a master marketer. He got a little like smart car. That's yeah. wrapped with the Nacho Bangers logo and all. Like, this Damn, dude knows how to lit. market. There's yeah. another company in Baltimore called Crust by Mac. 
Mm-hmm. And she is in this food hall in Baltimore, this like newly renovated food hall. She just did a call, like a hiring by wrapping the job description on her Instagram account. It was the dopest thing I've ever seen. She wrapped it? She wrapped. Like, if you want to work for... She wrapped it, bro. She's fitting. Yeah, and she's from Baltimore, so she got that Baltimore accent. You know, I can't do it. I love it. it. But, like, she got that... You you already got an accent. So you can do (laughs) what I can do. You know, I'm trying to do the accent, but I'm not... She wrapped the job description, bro. Like, she gets it. I love that. That's what I'm saying about us using our creativity for ownership purposes. There, Can I say this? This, yeah. is, this is how I describe it. I might have said this to you a long time ago, but it's using our culture for our culture, but do it in a genuine way. Like, don't be a black person that is very much like for the culture, but not really for the people. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. you, you really do turn your nose up when you get to certain parts of town or whatever, you know, like. Mm. If you're going to love Black people, especially as a Black person, love us unconditionally. Yeah, yeah. Love us with acrylic nails or, you know, tapered nails or, you know, green hair. Love the sex workers. The sex workers, the the trans people. Thank you. Wow, that's amazing. KJ, here's the last thing. I promise. Last thing. I know how much you love pitching your TV show. That's why I said you as a future television host. Yeah. And I really want to talk more about that because we could go on and on just period. Yeah. But just go ahead. I know you love doing that. And I know you got it down to a science because you like went through this whole course for it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us. Tell us the name. Just do it. Yeah. So very long story short, I have a concept for an episodic travel food show that would travel all around the nation visiting exclusively Black-owned restaurants Mm -hmm. and telling Black food stories. The main difference between my story and anyone else's is that I will not, I want to repeat this, I will not be dwelling in Black trauma. Why should we? We have enough of that. We have enough of that, bro. This is going to be about a celebration of Black food, a celebration of Black cuisine, and a celebration of the people who make it possible. So if you're coming here to cry, tears of pain and heartache, you want to see a struggle, this ain't going to be the show for you. If you want to see Black people being happy to be alive and making money and showcasing their skill, their culinary skill, then this will be the show for you. If you want to see struggle, watch Roots, okay? Watch Roots. Watch 12 Years a Slave. Watch High on the Hog. But this ain't that. Mm. This ain't going to be that. And to be clear, there's a place for that. You feel me? Like... Mm -hmm. There's a place for that. It just ain't going to be on my show. Boom. I mean, all that's right. it, bro. Like, you know, I mean, I don't want to go into I love that. the format and all, but no, I just want to give people. Yeah, yeah. Just give them a bite. Once the show becomes a thing, mm-hmm. then I'll be more than happy to come back. And, you know, we can do an episode about the show. Uh, listen, we we damn sure will. I'm going to hold you to it. It is recorded and documented, so you can't say no. Okay, so... Wow, damn, KJ, this has been so good. It has definitely been long. I'm fine with that. You still here, so obviously you good. It's summer. You got time. Tell the people how they can support you, follow you, and keep up with you. Black Food Fridays, pow, 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 just wrap it up. Yeah, first and foremost, thank you again for inviting me. Uh, My name is KJ Kearney. You can find me at Black Food Fridays. Please add an S to Friday on both TikTok and Instagram. I have a Twitter account. I do not use it much, so don't worry about following me there. You can join the mailing list, the Who Made the Potato Salad mailing list by visiting blackfoodfridays.com. 
You can support my Patreon, which is also under Black Food Fridays, because what a lot of people don't realize is most of this food I pay for myself. So I I, I appreciate everyone who's been willing to donate, invest in the Patreon. You can also give a one-time donation using Vimeo Mm -hmm. at Black Food Fridays if you want to support that way. I will be coming out with more merchandise soon. As soon as I get all that on the back end situated, people really like the coffee mugs. So we're going to keep pumping out different coffee mugs. I'm going to get one because I love coffee. Yeah, yeah. So people love the coffee mugs. But more importantly, think of Black Food Fridays as Taco Tuesdays, but for Black people food. You know that's what I mean? I like, explain it. That's yeah. what it is, man. So make sure you support this and any other Friday you have the financial wherewithal to do so. And for those who don't have money, join the mailing list to your favorite restaurants or your favorite, you know, recipe developers or food bloggers. Yeah. Buy a T-shirt, buy merchandise, share their profile, follow them online. Like there's many ways to support without spending money. I have another tip. I mean, I know you said support without spending money, but I have a tip because I've done this before when my funds was a little funny. If you can go to a black owned restaurant on a Friday, you don't have to go and get like the entree, the biggest thing on the menu, get a slice of cake. I remember getting a side of okra. Oh baby, that okra was so good. It was like $3. Nice portion. You can still support, like it doesn't matter the size of the order, just go and support or even Maybe just go in there and, and and shout them out. Ask them what they need. Like if you have a talent or ability, like maybe you're good at social media and you looking at this restaurant's social media, you're like, wow, they're not really out here like that. Go and ask how you can help and support. So just there's a plethora of ways and follow KJ. He's always sharing all the ways. So it's so amazing what you do. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm proud of you. And I am truly, my mind is blown at the fact that like I even had anything to do with the inception. So thank you, KJ, for joining me on Black in the Garden. I close out, wish you love, light, and soil. 